Hello, I'm Rob Congdon, Director of Congdon Ministries International. Have you ever answered your phone and as the other person said, hello, you recognize their voice as a good friend that you have not heard from in years and years? We often get so caught up in the day-to-day that we seem to get out of touch with friends who are far away. Happily, a true friendship does not depend on the amount of time spent together, for it continues even during the gaps in communication. Similarly, Israel had not heard from God for over 400 years. God's last communication to them came with the words of the prophet Malachi back in 430 BC. Those last words recorded in chapter 4 and beginning in verse 3 says, Now unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall, and ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. And then God says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. That was Malachi chapter 4, verses 2, 3, 5, and 6. With the book of Malachi and the Old Testament, Israel would not hear from her God for over 400 years. 400 years of silence. For much of that period, from the Garden of Eden to Malachi, God primarily communicated to the world through his beloved nation of Israel and her writings by the prophets. Thus through Israel, all mankind could hear God's words declaring God's holy standard, their need of salvation, and how to trust him for that salvation. But by 430 B.C., God spoke no further words, for God was silent. Now, silence after almost a thousand years of written revelation through the scriptures, mankind was still left with questions about God and his purposes. One could not help but sense there was more to come, but when? The late Sidlow Baxter, a Bible teacher of many, many years, he called this sense of incompleteness an unfinished symphony of God. I think that's a good term, an unfinished symphony. There was more to come. Thus Israel and many God-fearing men throughout the world sought to hear the completed symphony of God. They waited for the rest of the symphony which would tell them more of the Messiah. During those 400 years of silence, the world around Israel greatly changed. The Greek Empire had come to an end. It was gone. It was replaced by the Roman Empire. Under Rome's tight control, Israel had a brief time of independence under the Maccabean Revolt that is observed at the time of Hanukkah each year. Yet that failed revolt 
occurred over 160 years ago before God would speak again. Israel wondered when would God break the silence and remember her. At this time of the year, as we hear the Christmas story, some wonder if the Messiah is coming soon. Consequently, they asked me, did the people of the first century have a similar wondering if the coming of the Messiah was near? Were they looking for the Messiah based on Malachi's last words? Or had they given up hope during those 400 years of silence? The answer is quite simply, yes, some were faithfully watching for the coming of the Messiah. For those of us, a minority, yes, now waiting for the Lord's second coming, that coming to catch up his bride, the church, at the rapture, we can be encouraged as we are reminded of those who, like us, were anticipating the soon coming Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us begin by looking back to those believers who were waiting for the first coming of the Messiah. We find that there were four key characteristics of the messianic hope of that day. The first characteristic, the messianic hope of that day knew how to recognize the Messiah when he would come. For the scriptures said he would be of the seed of the woman. That's Genesis 3.15. He'd be of the seed of Abraham, Genesis 22, verse 18. He'd be of the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49, verse 10. He'd be a prophet like Moses, Deuteronomy 8, 18. He'd also be of the kingly line of David, 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 16. Yes, he'd be a suffering servant. Isaiah 53. He'd be born of a virgin, Isaiah 7.14, in the village of Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. And he'd be preceded by a forerunner or a prophet, according to Malachi 3.1 and chapter 4, verse 5. The second characteristic of the messianic hope of that day, it had a limited secular view of what the Messiah would accomplish. In writings outside of the Old Testament, there was an emphasis on the Messiah as a temporal king and a political deliverer who would overthrow the Roman Empire and establish the kingdom of Israel. Yet, as we shall see shortly, the spiritual aspect of the Messiah was believed by some, oh yes, a small minority, but by some. The third characteristic of the messianic hope of that day didn't understand the two-phased mission of the Messiah. That first phase of dying and then rising from the dead that would then bring in the second stage, his earthly kingdom. They never would have believed the nation could reject the Messiah and, and allow him to die. Yet Zechariah 12 indicates all this. 
the fourth characteristic, the messianic hope of a savior, was a vital part of the life of true believers. Oh yes, a minority of people who anxiously were awaiting the Messiah's coming. Four characteristics of the hope in the day in which Jesus Christ was born on this earth. Now, I would like to look at this small but significant minority of true believers. The 400 years from Malachi to Matthew's record events remind us that it was God who decided when to finish the symphony. Paul the Apostle wrote in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4. He wrote, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law. Notice, God sent forth. You see, God controlled how long the period of silence was until Christ came the first time. Now, God was not idle during that time. The stage had to be set properly before God the Father would send God the Son to be born of the Virgin in Bethlehem. Apparently, 400 years was needed for the fullness of time to be complete. So too in our time. True believers have been waiting now <laughs> over almost 2,000 years. As God is again setting the stage for Jesus Christ's second coming, when that fullness of time comes. Remember, God has always been in control, and he still is. As we're going to be entering a new year, we need to keep that always before our eyes and not forget that God has always been in control, even during the periods of silence. Let's look at those people that were waiting for God to break the 400 years of silence. The first person to hear God's voice after those 400 years of silence, when God finally broke the silence, was Zechariah, as recorded in Luke chapter 1 and verse 5, where we read, There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zechariah, of the course of Abijah, and his wife of the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. During Zechariah's day, the priesthood had been divided into divisions or courses. Each course would carry out priestly duties on a rotating schedule. When it was Zechariah's course's time, he would go to Jerusalem, he would serve at the temple, performing duties assigned to him. Luke relates this in verse 8, where Luke says, and it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. Now, as part of those duties, lots were taken to determine who would do what at the temple. At this unique time in history, Zechariah was chosen to burn the incense. You see, the average priest 
would be allowed to do this task, this burning of the incense, maybe only once in his entire life. Thus, this was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. You see, for being chosen, Mark the priest as a man of privilege in Israel for the rest of his life. He would always be looked at, respected, and remembered for that unique opportunity. For many of that priesthood, even of his course, they'd never be chosen to burn the incense. There were so many of them, and the opportunities limited. As great a privilege as burning the incense was, the reason for the privilege's distinction is that that priest would be allowed to offer a prayer request of God, a request that would be granted by God as long as it was a godly request. A unique opportunity to pray to God, ask for something that God will give to that man. Obviously, a man would not treat this lightly, for this was the time to pray for your heart's greatest desire. In this passage, we're allowed to look in and to see into the heart of Zechariah through the answer given by God's angel. After 400 years, catch that, after 400 years of never hearing God's voice through angels or God direct, we have in verse 13, God breaking his silence to Israel. We read, But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zechariah, for thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. You see, we get to know that prayer that Zechariah offered was for a son. But it was not just any son. Every righteous person living in that day, every righteous man was, who was really truly close to the Lord, had one desire above all. That desire was to have a son be born that was either the Messiah, if they didn't really understand the scriptures, or most probably the belief that perhaps they could have a son who was the prophet that would go before the Messiah in fulfillment of God's last word to Israel given through the prophet Malachi, recorded again in chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 of Malachi. Remember, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dead, dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Back in Luke chapter 1 and verse 17, we read that it is confirmed that Zechariah's wife Elizabeth would give birth to that prophet who, the scripture tells us, shall go before him the Messiah in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah's prayer shows that there were righteous men in Israel Righteous men who remembered God's word in the scriptures in Malachi, who did not allow the 400 years of silence 
to keep them from being silent and praying to their Lord. There were people of that time, righteous people, who looked for the coming of the Messiah and his prophet and longed to be the father when the fullness of time came to break God's silence. The breaking of the silence is when God visits his people. That's a special term. In verse 68 we read, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people and hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of the, his servant David, as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began. This was no mere political king these scriptures were speaking of. For here was a redeemer who would bring salvation from sin by granting unto us personal holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life, verse 75 tells us. This would be accomplished by, in verse 77, the remission of their sins. See, this was a spiritual redemption for the people of Israel who were righteous looking for the Messiah. Now, Luke carefully delineates the prophet from the Messiah. For the Messiah is, according to Luke, the day spring from on high hath visited us. Verse 78. The day spring from or out of is perhaps a better translation for the Greek word means to be out of, coming out of high. High being heaven where God the Father was. This verse leaves us with no doubt as to who is born in Bethlehem. And God again speaks through his angel in chapter 2 and verse 11 in these very familiar words. For unto you, that's the shepherds, is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ, that's Messiah in the Hebrew, the Lord. That's Luke 2.11, the angel speaking to the shepherds. Now the shepherds were unique shepherds. These were the shepherds that were near to Jerusalem. The shepherds who took care of the sheep that were to be sacrificed. It is possible those shepherds too looked for the coming Messiah. I believe that because the records of the scriptures indicate of righteous people that were knew what the angels were talking about, knew what the Messiah was, and they spoke specifically to these shepherds. So I think they too were looking. Of Zechariah's son we learn that he shall be called the prophet of the highest, for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins. Through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the dayspring on, from on high hath visited us. That's chapter 1, verse 76. Had God forgotten Israel for 400 years? No, for not only did God speak, but he chose a man whose very name tells us that God does not forget, for Zechariah means remembered by God. Two additional people who God would remember also testify to the fact 
that people of that day were looking for a Messiah who would bring salvation, spiritual salvation, redemption. Luke tells us that when he says that Simeon, a just and devout man who was waiting for the consolation of Israel. That's Luke 2, verse 25. The consolation of Israel literally means one called aside for cheer. Isaiah established that it was a phrase meaning the coming Messiah. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10, and in Isaiah 40, verse 1. Further, we are told that God revealed to Simeon that he would not die until his waiting ended as he saw the Lord's Messiah, or Lord's Christ, Luke 2, verse 26. When the babe was brought to Jerusalem to fulfill the law, for remember, Jesus was born under the law, according to Galatians 4, 4. Simeon recognized that this child as the Messiah, for we read that he said, Now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation. Luke 2, 29 and verse 30. Like Zechariah, God rewarded Simeon and us with a new truth about the Messiah. For the Messiah would be a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel according to Luke 2, verse 32. This was a significant new truth, as the anticipated role of the Messiah now went far beyond just Israel. He would not just redeem the Israelites from the political rule of Rome, not just remit the sins of the Jewish people, but would bring salvation to the Gentiles or nations of the world. You see, in Jesus' day, the Jewish world taught that the Gentiles were blind to the truth and in darkness spiritually. But this tells us that the Jewish scriptures could bring light because of the Messiah. Thus, now salvation would be proclaimed to all men without the requirement of converting to Judaism and obedience to the law. Now notice carefully here. Salvation was always available to all men, but they had to follow the law to properly live out and demonstrate that salvation, that trust and faith in God alone, and belief that God would send a deliverer who would pay for their sins. Immediately after Simeon's revelation, we have an 84-year-old woman, Anna, that comes and adds to our understanding of what people believe the Messiah would do. We read in Luke and verse 38. And she was a widow. Anna was a widow of about fourscore and four years. Anna spake of him to all that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. Notice that, verse 38 at the end, she spake of him, who? The Messiah. To all that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. She was a testimony of God, saying that God would send redemption. Do you see what I'm saying here? People were looking for redemption. 
They were looking for the Messiah as the one to bring redemption to them. They weren't just looking for a political deliverer. Oh yeah, the great majority. They just wanted to overthrow Rome and get rid of it. But the righteous people, there was a small minority looking for the Messiah to bring redemption. Many were looking to God to bring redemption through the Messiah to them personally. Both these people were at the temple. Both were obviously religious. Yes, they observed it. And according to the scriptures, though, they were righteous. You see, righteousness is more than believing the facts. Righteousness is trusting in your heart totally in God to bring deliverance of salvation. It's to be trusting in our day, we know, to be trusting Jesus Christ. Were the Gentiles in darkness? Of course they were. But so was the whole world. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All are distant from God. But if they come to know Jesus Christ, they can draw near to him. And in this case, these two people represent that there were clearly righteous souls looking for the Messiah to actually come and fulfill the scriptures. Now, it's also kind of natural to ask another question. Were there any non-religious people or non-Jewish people that knew of the coming of the Messiah or at least understood it? And again, the answer is yes. The testimony was there. There were people who heard it and just didn't care. As we have seen, there certainly were righteous Jewish people waiting and looking for the coming Messiah in Israel. But that really brings us to a second question. Were there any non-Jewish people who were looking for the coming Messiah? This was a Jewish Messiah, remember of the scriptures. Were they looking for a Jewish Messiah? Once again, the answer is yes. God's scriptures had gone out and people heard. By looking over in Matthew chapter 2, we find that there were Gentiles from the east, east of Israel, way across around the crescent, who arrived in Jerusalem to come to see about the birth of the Messiah. They asked a simple question. Where is he that is born king of the Jews. For we have seen a star in the east and are come to worship him. That's Matthew chapter 2 and verse 2. Notice here three things we know about these men. For we read that when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem. We don't know how many men there were, but we do know what they asked. Notice, first of all, they were seeking to find the newborn king of the Jews. Remember, these men had come from the east, Babylon. That was another kingdom. That was a Gentile world. That wasn't a Jewish world. Now, Herod was not their king. 
for their king was back in Babylon. And any suggestion of an alternative king of the Jews would be taken as an affront to Herod. Herod now, he was an Edomite who served Rome as king of Judea. He was not a full-blooded Jewish person. Herod had been accepted, and I put that in quotes, by the Jewish leadership because he had rebuilt their temple and he often placated them in order to keep them peaceful and not have problems in Judea. At the time of Jesus' birth, Herod had been ruling for 36 years successfully. He was probably, oh, about 70 years of old. Now, Herod was a wicked man who would stop at nothing to retain his rule as king of Judea. For example, he had killed his wife, his mother-in-law, his brother-in-law, and his wife's grandfather, all in order to keep secure his throne now of 36 years. Historically, King David had defeated the Edomites, and an animosity between them and the Jews was always just below the surface. Herod didn't want anything to bring out problems from that. Now, Herod would die within a year of the visit of these men from the east. So Herod had a long rule. Here he's got men coming from another nation saying they want to meet the king of the Jews. And they didn't consider Herod the king of the Jews because they asked him where could they find the king. To Herod, this was a treasonous idea that if spread in Jerusalem could overthrow Herod's 36 years. The second thing we learn from these men that came to the Middle East of Israel was that many taught that when an unusual astronomical event occurred, it signaled the birth of a king. Thus his star, the star the wise men said they saw, spoke of this unique star conveying a signal to these men. Now, just last night, my wife and I went out to a hill and we watched a unique bringing together of two planets that created bright light in the sky, and you could see the smaller planet next to the bigger one. It's been 700-some years since they were this close to the Earth, that close to each other, that they were so bright. But you see, this star, his star, the scripture says, was even more unique, for it occurred once in history. This star was seen in the east, and the wise men saw it and said, wow, something has happened of significance that they have been taught to be looking for, for they interpreted his star as the birth of a king. How could they have known that? Well, I believe these men had studied Daniel's writings, and thus they were looking and waiting for the Messiah's birth. The book of Daniel lays it all out clearly, even gives you a means of calculating approximate time the Messiah would appear. I believe these wise men, now 500 years since Daniel, still reading Daniel's writings, saw the star and said, it's his star, let us go to Jerusalem to see the king of the Jews. Clearly, they're watching the skies 
for just such an event. The third thing we learn from these men, they came to worship a Jewish king. <laughs> Remember, they were Gentiles from without Israel. They weren't Jewish. Obviously, as I've said, for over 500 years, the testimony of Daniel continued to be repeated, to be read and known and appreciated within that very pagan land of Babylon. Once again, we see that God had Gentiles in mind even before the church's beginning at Pentecost of Acts chapter 2. I want to note that God has never excluded the Gentiles from salvation. He only restricted the Gentiles as to the method of their worship and lifestyle. Once righteous, they were to follow the Jewish laws and scriptures, and that would demonstrate their righteousness. Only in the church age would the law no longer be required, for the law was only a tutor to us, according to Galatians 3.24. However, many of the principles of the law should still influence our Christian lifestyle. Remember now, the author of that law reflected his character through the law. We still are to worship God with reverence and fear. We still need to remember in our worship we are approaching the throne of the Creator God. These wise men demonstrate that some non-Jewish peoples certainly were looking for a coming Jewish Messiah, even in a far-off pagan society, because of the testimony of Daniel and others while captive in Babylon. Now let's note Herod's response to the wise men. He didn't laugh. He didn't wonder. Who were they talking about? Messiah, what, what is that? Does anybody know? Instead, he earnestly inquires of the chief priests and scribes, recognizing this was both a spiritual matter, the priests, and a political matter. Matthew tells us that in verse 4 of chapter 2, and when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. No one questioned, what's a Messiah? What is a Christ? Instead, they responded quickly, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it was written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule, or literally shepherd my people Israel. Matthew 2, verses 5 and 6. This is very important to notice. We have secular Gentiles, Herod and the wise men, and we have spiritual leaders of Israel, chief priests and scribes, who are all on the same wavelength, if you will, concerning the scripture's description of the Messiah. They interpreted the scriptures as speaking of a prophesied king of Israel, and when asked by Gentiles about the Messiah, they knew it was Israel's Messiah that was sought. No one questions no one misunderstands, and no one separates king from Messiah spiritually. Clearly, the non-righteous world knew of the prophecies of a Messiah of Israel given over 500 years before the event. But notice, the king, the scribes, the priests, the others around him, 
None of them cared enough to go to the stable of the Messiah's birth. Interestingly, as we look at the other two Gospels, Mark's Gospel says nothing of the physical birth, nor does John's Gospel. Matthew relates this aspect of the birth because his Gospel was written to inform the Jewish people that Jesus of Nazareth was and is the prophesied Messiah of the Old Testament. On the other hand, Mark portrays Jesus of Nazareth as that of the servant Messiah. And we all know, no one bothers to record the birth of servants. Not in those days. Their birth information and genealogies was considered totally insignificant. John, however, does not record the birth because God had no beginning. And John begins with that affirmation that in the beginning the Messiah is God from eternity. He is God and as God had no birth. Thus the writers of the gospel fulfill their goals from the very first chapter of each book to the last. Clearly, Jesus of Nazareth was born according to the literal prophecy, was of the correct lineage of a king, was the coming Messiah of the Old Testament. Jewish and Gentile, religious and non-religious, rich and poor, knew of it as testified by Matthew and Luke. The remainder of the Gospels and the Epistles amplify the teaching of the Messiah, who is the Son of Man and the Son of God, who died for man, was resurrected to show that he had indeed redeemed man and paid the price of sins, which began in the garden with a promise in the book of Genesis. Now God once again concludes this portion of his speaking to Israel and the church in our scriptures with the book of Revelation. God has now been silent again while we are waiting for the Messiah. Just as with Malachi, the final words of God before another time of silence is a prophecy concerning the Messiah. And I want us to look at that prophecy. The scriptures say, and Jesus says, Behold, I come quickly, suddenly. My reward is with me, to give every man according as his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life, may enter in through the gates into the city, that's the new Jerusalem, for without are dogs, sorcerers, whoremongers, murderers, idolaters, and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him that heareth say, Come, and let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. That's Revelation chapter 22, verses 12 to 17. God's final words to a world that now awaits a Messiah. For each of us at this time of the year, we need to answer another question. Are we eagerly awaiting Jesus Christ next coming to the earth?
Will we remember God's final prophecy? Are we like the righteous people that rejoice to see the baby Jesus? Or like the unrighteous people who knew of him but didn't bother to seek him out? Your answer to this is an answer as to how important God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit is to you. To those of you who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, I would remind you of God's final words to us. He says, And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. To those of you who do not know the Lord, Christ as your personal Savior, you need to turn to him today. You need to recognize that you are a sinner, for all of sin come short of God's glory or God's standard. You need to recognize you're a sinner, that you need a Savior, for it's not of works, lest any man should boast. You can't earn your salvation. It's by God's grace alone can you be saved. You must believe that Jesus Christ came into this world, yes, as a baby, grew up, died on a cross, suffering your penalty that you rightfully deserve for your sins. For the scripture tells us, for the wages of sin is death. And Jesus Christ paid those wages that you've paid, that you should pay, because you have sinned and built up this debt to God that must be paid. Jesus Christ paid the debt on the cross. When he died, he said, it is finished. He paid for that. The debt is paid. When he was placed in the grave, he remained in the grave. Clearly for three days he was dead. He paid the death penalty. But then he arose again to show that he is the only one who can truly offer true eternal life. You receive that life by trusting in him. Yes, he paid the payment. But like any debt that's paid, you who owed it has to accept the substitute who paid the price. If you don't, it isn't paid. So you have to receive Jesus Christ's gift. For by grace are you saved through faith. That is the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. You see, faith is trusting that God did it in sending his son that God the Son did it on the cross, paying for your sins, that God the Son did rise again from the dead and stands there offering you the gift of eternal life. To as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. You must make an act of your will that says, I believe this and I accept it and trust in Jesus Christ. Now, for those of you who do know Jesus Christ, you need to remember his final words to us. Where we read, He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so come, Lord Jesus. It is my prayer that if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you want to get to know him as your Savior, give us a call. Contact a church that clearly defines that it teaches the Bible and ask them to show you from the scriptures, not my words, the scriptures, that you can be saved by receiving Jesus Christ. For those of you who do know the Lord as your Savior, keep in mind in 2 Timothy, Timothy's final words to us reminds us that all those who are looking for him are going to receive a special crown. 
because they're looking for his coming. This Christmas, are you looking for Jesus Christ to come back? As we look at the world affairs around us, it seems very hard to believe that we could be that far from Jesus Christ's coming. I want you to read this again from Timothy. Henceforth, there is laid up for me, that's Paul writing, but I'm writing it, it's for me, is it for you? A crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day is coming. And not to me only. Paul says, it's not just for Paul. It's for me. It's for you, if you are looking. But unto all of them also that what? Love his appearing. This Christmas, yes, remember the babe born in the manger. Yes, remember the Lord dying on the cross for your sins. Yes, remember the Lord who rose again to heaven to prepare a place for us. But also remember, he is coming again. And the question is, do you love his appearing? Are you going to be anxiously and delighted to see your Lord coming for you on that day? Now, may the Lord give you a Christ-filled Christmas. May he give you a blessed New Year. And until I see you either here or in the air, May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you.